You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Dangerous Prayers. In this series, we see how God invites us to grow in Christ-likeness and step into His mission as we learn to pray, search us, break us, unite us, and send us. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you all. Uh, My name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. If you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, We're going to spend a few weeks talking about prayers. Before we get into that, if you've been coming for a little while, or at least through the Advent season, I want to let you know we surpassed our year-end giving goal, Uh, so way to go. Um, Not not entirely sure by how much, but I know we were about three grand over it as of last Sunday, and that's not the the end of the year yet, right? So you have whatever. What is today? Sunday. 29th? So how many days are in December? You have two more days. So if Santa was good to you, uh, you know, make a year-end gift, I guess. Uh, everything is going to go out uh, to our church planters in Lyon at this point, so thank you all so much for your generosity. And uh, yeah, it's just, just kind of fun if you've been here for a while seeing what's going on financially with our church, and I'm just really grateful for you guys, so thanks. Uh, it was a couple of nights ago, I think it was Christmas Eve to be exact, and um, we always have a, at our family, for whatever reason, we have a bigger meal on Christmas Eve than we do on Christmas Day. And so we did it up. We had a shrimp. Y'all ever had St. Elmo's cocktail sauce? Anybody had this stuff? Woo! If you want like a free nasal road, router router, uh, it says on the label, very hot, which is like, it's a joke. Um, it's unbelievable. I've never had an experience like it. So I had about 37 shrimp with St. Elmo's. Uh, cleared me out, and then we came and had our late service, and then uh, one of our members here, this is one of the perks of pastoral ministry, somebody gave my family a chocolate cheesecake, and, and also we had made um, our Christmas sugar co- cookies, it's a secret sage family recipe, Pillsbury dough, um, slice it, and so I get home at like 1.30 on Christmas Eve, we had had our big meal with all of our St. Elmo's, and I'm like, I'm exhausted, but there's chocolate cheesecake and Christmas cookies. And so I had some, Steve. I had some. And, um, and I laid in bed with all the sugar just right here, you know? And I just had this overwhelming thought of, why did I do that? It tasted good, but I felt horrific. Um, and it took me to about 2 p.m. Christmas Day before I had kind of gotten my equilibrium back. And... It got me thinking, what a strange question that is. Uh, why did I do that? You all have asked yourself that before, right? I'm not, for more significant things and less significant things, but uh, you have asked yourself that, right? Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. Why did I do that? Uh, it's a very, <laughs> it's strange because no one made the choice for you, right? You were there when you made the choice, uh, but you didn't know why. We do things that we wish we didn't, and we don't know why we did what we did, even though we were the ones who did it. 
And if that sentence confuses you, you get, it's just a strange question. Why did I do that? These kinds of internal contradictions and strangeness, uh, it happens all of the time if you pay attention to your life. Uh, try to imagine maybe the last, converse, last argument. What's the Christian version of argument? The last intense conversation. Um, Christians don't get angry, we get frustrated. Right? Like, so whatever. Your last intense disagreement you had with, a, with somebody you love. Could, could have been a parent, uh, maybe it was a spouse or a sibling, a good friend. Uh, can you remember the, a dreadful, horrific moment when you started to suspect that maybe the other person was right? You ever had that experience? <laughs> Not many. Some of you can't, I know, it hasn't happened to you yet. If you live long enough and you get close to people, you will find yourself in a disagreement, holding tightly to a position, and at some point beginning to realize that you may be the one who's wrong. Or uh, if you've had an experience where you're arguing about something petty, um, and maybe your wife says to you, you got to stop putting the dog bowl in with the kids' bowls. And you're like, I'm not an idiot. I wouldn't put a dog bowl in with the kids' bowl. And you whip open the cabinet and the dog bowl's sitting right on top of the kid bowl. And how do you feel when you realize you could be the one who's wrong? I've yet to meet someone that was like, well, now that you put it that way, I'm so thankful that you revealed to me the error of my ways. Isn't that strange? Because at least at our church, we, we talk about being a truth people or we're people of the book and we want to know what's true. We want to live in reality. And then you find yourself in these conversations where maybe you're believing something that isn't true and it's exposed to you and you get angry about it. I've, I've seen this happen in church quite a bit. This will be my last example. Have you ever come to something in the Bible or you, maybe you heard something in a sermon and you just didn't like it? Uh, the worst is when maybe you know it's true or it's got that ring of truth to it and and maybe you're the kind of person, maybe you're a wild, a radical enough Christian that will say something like, the Bible is authoritative. I want the Bible to have authority in my life, which just means if the Bible and I disagree about something, I'm going to side with the Bible on it. But then you come to something, everybody loves Jesus when he's, pick your political party, right? When Jesus is a Republican, we love the Jesus Republican verse. If you're a Democrat, you love the Jesus is a Democrat verse. But if you're a Republican and you come to the Democrat verse, or you're a Democrat and you come to the Republican verse, then you become a biblical scholar, right? Then you go to the original languages and you go to Tertullian and you go like, well, this is what the early church, and so this is where it's really not what it sounds like. So we love Jesus in the Bible when it agrees with us. And then you find something and maybe you're like, I probably should believe this, but it just makes us angry. I know it's true, maybe I should believe it, but I don't like it, and I'm angry about it. All that to say, the, the human soul is a profound mystery. Oh, that right answers were enough to live wisely. Uh, oh, that mere information was enough to straighten all the crooked paths of our lives. Our, the human soul is a profound mystery, and I would say more specifically, your soul is a profound mystery to you because you ask yourself things like, why did I do that? Now, biblically speaking, a biblical mystery isn't something that has no explanation. It's just has one that you don't see yet. 
It could be that God has held something back, something hasn't been revealed yet. So it's not to say that there's things about you that are completely unknowable and you'll never know them. There's just probably a lot of things that you don't know about you yet. And I think if, if we're honest, many of us would admit we are complete mysteries to ourselves. Or we find a lot of comfort with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 where he says, I don't do the things I want to do and I, I do the things I don't want to do. We repeat unhealthy patterns, we sabotage relationships and jobs, and we don't know why. Maybe you find yourself, if you're on like the third or fourth job where you're like, oh, these, I've got these idiot bosses again, or the third or fourth relationship where you're like, oh, these crazy people, or all of my friends always do this to me. You know, there's a common denominator in all of those situations, that's, and it's you, which I'm not trying to say that if you're in a complex situation, it's your fault. But if you see repeating patterns happening in your life that, that are happening over time, you have to consider you could be part of the problem. And yet many of us remain total mysteries to ourselves. I, I came across an author who was reflecting on many of the Psalms, um, by King David in particular. And when he came to this Psalm, Psalm 139, he wrote this. He said, David did a lot of courageous things. He fought a lion, put a submission on a bear with his bare hands. He kills Goliath with a slingshot. But the most dangerous thing that he ever did was to pray this prayer. Specifically, I heard some of you chuckle because we had one verse that we talked we, that was that Sarah read for us. Why is praying "Search me" so dangerous? I'm assuming if we took a poll and said, "Would you rather pray, pray search me or wrestle a bear?" Most of us would say, "Well, praying search me sounds a bit safer." Why is praying "Search me" so dangerous? Why would we lead a series called "Dangerous Prayers" with? search me. Uh, if you pray this, if you pray search me, the mystery of who you are and what you have lived may be revealed to you. You may see things, uh, things may be revealed to you that you weren't expecting, or more likely things that you have been trying to avoid. This prayer, though, in, in many ways, it's a foundational prayer. I don't, I don't know how robust of a prayer life you can have if this isn't a regular part of what you're praying. Uh, so we finished our Advent series, The Songs of Jesus, uh, on Christmas Eve. And, and last Sunday, in essence, we said, um, if you want to change and be different, you have to experience the real presence of Jesus. You have to behold him. Praying, search me, is a prayer to know yourself so that you can know God. You cannot be in relationship if you don't know yourself, period. Any relationship, let alone a relationship with God. And if you're tempted to be like, ah, new age, psychobabble, nonsense, or whatever. Like, this is historic Christianity, that this belief that there has to be two sides involved in a relationship. 
Uh, one example, just because it's easy, a guy named John Calvin, which you don't have to be a big fan of John Calvin, but he wrote one of the most influential books of all time when he was 26. So it means he's really smart is all I'm saying. And the, this super influential book is called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which like, you gotta have some guts to write that when you're 26. This is Christianity. But he wrote it and it's, I mean, it's been a transformational book the world over. In the very beginning of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and by the very beginning, I mean chapter one, paragraph one, sentence one, the very beginning. He says, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. You can't know yourself if you don't know God, and you can't know God if you don't know yourself. Pursuing one will force you to pursue the other. And if, if you need it, you need me to break it down even more simply than that. Just try to imagine being in a relationship with a poster on your wall. Put you, pick your favorite celebrity. Put a picture of Brad Pitt on your wall. And you can study his face. You can read his Wikipedia page. But if you don't know the sound of his voice, if you don't have conversation with him, you are not in relationship with Brad Pitt. Does that make sense? A little bit of sense? There has to be knowledge, self-knowledge, and participation for any kind of relationship to happen. Show me why I got angry, God. Show me why I keep doing that. Show me why I am the way that I am. This is the heart of what's going on in this prayer. It's a prayer to know ourselves for the sake of knowing God. And we... I think the only way we can really do this is by embracing two big bucket realities about God that David prays before this prayer at the end of Psalm 139. So in the very first verse of Psalm 139, he says, Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. The first reality we have to accept to come to this prayer is that God already knows everything about you. There are no secrets between you and the Lord. He knows everything about you. This is called the doctrine of God's omniscience. Somebody say omniscience. Omniscience. Feels good, doesn't it? Omniscience. It means God knows everything. So the awareness problem is not on God's end. There are no mysteries to God. There is nothing that God is waiting for to have revealed to him. God does not need to figure you out. God doesn't need to talk to your therapist. God doesn't need to read your journals. He knows everything about you. The awareness problem isn't on God's end. God doesn't need to figure himself out for this relationship to work. After verse one, David gives lots of examples of what God knows. And it's, it's beautiful, beautiful ways of saying that every detail of our lives is laid before God. He's, it's not like God just zooms in or flips the channel to church. He's like, here we are on Sunday. What's Rebecca doing? Or whatever. He knows everything about you, intimate details of your life. When you go, wake up, when you go to bed, he knows everything about you. You're the one who's in the dark, to flip it on the other side of that. You're the one who has an awareness problem or who has mysteries, not God. The second reality, he prays after this in verse seven, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. God knows everything. That's his omniscience. This is, God is everywhere. 
which is called omnipresence. That one doesn't feel as good to say. You can try it if you want. Omnipresence. Omniscience rolls better, I think. feels smoother. It's less of a harsh finish. You know, omnipresence is a little rougher. But omnipresence means God is everywhere. He is available everywhere at all times. He's not confined to holy places. I get what we say, but I always think it's kind of funny when people say, like, I, I want to go find Jesus, as though, like, Jesus is out lost in the woods or something like that, and we found him. There he is. You know, the presence of Christ is everywhere. God is everywhere at all times. He's not confined to holy places. So listen, if he knows everything about you and his presence is always near you, you can pray, search me, knowing you have a God who has something to say to you and who is near to you to say it. You hear that? God has something to say to you, and he's close enough to you to say it. If you get these two realities, omniscience, omnipresence, you can carve out time to pray this dangerous prayer. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you, and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Just leave, yeah, leave that up for a second. I just want to point out a few things kind of related to the posture of this prayer. He says, search me. You search me. It's a prayer of need and dependence. I am a mystery. You search me. You are in charge. I'm not going to figure me out. I'll come to you with vulnerability but also faith and a desire to change. You search me. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. This is a prayer about trust. Show me why I don't trust you. That's the heart of most anxiety. Please hear the word most. Not all anxiety. Some anxiety is rooted in trauma. Some of it's rooted in biology. I'm not talking about that kind of anxiety. Most anxiety stems from a failure to trust in God's provision and protection. And I imagine most, you're at church, so there's got to be some part of you that wants to trust God, right? Amen? One guy in the front. Some, two guys, front row. All right. Like, I want to trust God. I have yet to meet someone that's like, hey, it's a Tuesday. I'm going to panic attack today, right? Like, I really want to get anxious today. Um, most of us want to trust God, and then we struggle. Or you get stressed out because your $32 bill that you didn't expect shows up, and you're like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And we, we get anxious because we're failing to trust God. Why do I do that? You show me, test me, test my anxious thoughts. Show me why I don't trust your provision and protection. He's not, leave that verse up for a, a, a minute. Put it back. There we go. Thank you. Thanks, Connor. Um, he's not really like confessing a sin. Do you see that? He's not like self-flagellating or whatever that phrase is. Um, he's not even really sure what's going on. He's saying, find out why I'm anxious. He's not saying, forgive me for doing this. He's kind of saying, poke around under the hood and help me see if there's anything going on here. There are things that keep me from trusting you. Show them to me. You show them to me. There's something that's keeping me from trusting you. Show it to me. And then he says, point out anything. 
point out to me. I need your help in seeing this. I need you to show me something. And he says specifically, point out to me anything that offends. This is a a bit of a complicated word that's rich in biblical meaning. Kind of superficially, it it refers to like pain and hurt. So he's saying, show me anything that hurts you. Uh, But it's also kind of an idiom about idolatry. He's saying, show me idols that lead me away. Point out to me. uh, And what is an idol? If, If anxiety is a failure to trust, idolatry is a failure to love. That's the core of idolatry. There are things that we look to that we love, that we desire more than God. So he's, idols are a violation of trust. I'm kind of like theology, theological nitpicking myself now. They are a violation of trust. I just think more fundamentally it's a violation of love. So I think he's praying both, show me what keeps me from trusting you and show me what I'm loving more than you. Show me what it is that I love more than you. Help me to see it. Point it out to me. And then the follow-up there at the end, lead me along the path of everlasting life, which implicitly reminds us what idolatry does. It, it steals, it kills, and it destroys. Idolatry leads us away from life. And he's saying, I don't want these things anymore, but I'm not even really sure what it all is. So lead me in a new direction. So, so look at the movement happening through Psalm 130. Just the, the couple of verses we've looked at. You know everything, And to pray that is also to pray, I don't know very much. I don't even know myself, because why did I do that? You are everywhere, and you'll see if you go back on those one through six verses, he can never escape you. God is everywhere. I can't ever get away from you. You can do anything. You made me, and I can't do this on my own. You are perfect, so show me why I don't trust you. You are beautiful. Show me what keeps me from loving you. This is the movement of Psalm 139. So if you want the application, the hard-hitting, insightful pastoral application, pray, search me. What do we do in light of this? Start praying, search me. But I want to give you a sincere warning. This is a dangerous prayer. Only pray that if you sincerely want to change if you are ready for something different or new in your life. If you pray this, you may learn things about your family, about your addictions, about fear, shame, guilt. You'll you'll remember things that you thought you had forgotten. You will feel things that you've tried to avoid or numb. If you begin to see yourself, you will likely not enjoy what you see at the beginning. If you've spent your life neglecting and ignoring yourself or living as an idealized, super spiritual version of yourself, where you put on the church mask and you try to act a certain way and convince everyone and you're this kind of profoundly hollow person and you start praying, search me and seeing who you really are, for many of us it will be It will feel like waking up in that kind of disorienting, confused. It's like waking up from a sweaty nap, you know, when you were cold and then the blanket got too hot and you woke up just kind of nauseous and hot. You you know that? Was that a bad illustration? Uh, You you get that? Yeah, the sweaty afternoon nap where the sun came down in the afternoon and then the sun started shining on you on the couch and it wasn't there. 
It's that feeling where you don't feel great when you first wake up. But this pain of, of waking up is, in so many ways, is medicine. It's what healing feels like. But in the beginning, it will feel painful. So much of the real growth of Christian life comes with a cost. It comes with pain and disorientation and discomfort. And I, I don't want you to head down that road unprepared or to get caught off guard by it. So if you're ready, carve out 10 minutes a week, a few times a week if you're really crazy, pray search me, and then listen. The only way I can think of that you could screw this up is if you pray like how most of us pray when it comes to this prayer. And so here's, what we, here's how you would screw this up. Father God in heaven, Lord Almighty, I just want to worship you, and I just want to say, God, that you are mighty, and I love you, and just Father God, with all of your wisdom and goodness, search me, God. Would you just search me, God? And God, if you would just search me, I would listen, and if you would speak and just reveal yourself to me, and just Father God in heaven, I just wish you would search me, Lord. Just, and we ramble on, finding a hundred different ways to say, God, search me. And then we get to the end of the 10 minutes, and we're like, I did it. And all you did was ramble for 10 minutes. I went to a, a conference breakout session on prayer one time, and the dude was so mad because he'd given his career to praying, and he's like, listen, if you pray with me, you get two justs. If you say just more than twice, I'm out, because listen how we pray. Lord, I just want to say to you, Lord, I just want to say, just, well, then just say it, man. Why do you need to ramble on and on and on and on and on? Are you a pro-Christian because you can say so little with so many words? Search me is a prayer you can pray with one breath. Search me. And listen. And listen. We have a free field guide out on our How We Grow wall, creatively titled, Listen. <laughs> so if you're not quite ready to pray, and you're that person's like, I just want to read about how to be quiet... <laughs> free. You can go read it. Uh, there's a great book by H.P. Charles out there that you can buy on prayer. If you want to save the money and time, uh, take 10 minutes where you won't be distracted, won't be people, and start praying. Search me. And whatever God shows you, let that drive you to greater love for Jesus. It could be a memory. It could be suffering. It could be your own distractions. You, you may find yourself on minute three wondering what are chicken nuggets made out of. And you know, it doesn't feel holy at all. If you're slamming Instagram and Facebook and that dopamine hit is constantly going and you try to take 10 minutes and not do anything, you'll, you'll go through withdrawals. I mean that sincerely. You'll be restless and distracted and it will, that will be some of the pain. Whatever you find, so you see that. There could be a temptation to say, oh, I'm such an idiot. Why do I spend so much time on my phone? Uh, and you just beat yourself up. So maybe God's showing you your addiction to stuff. And instead of beating yourself up, say, Lord, help me. You're showing me that I'm distracted. Heal this in me. Thank you that you forgive me. So whatever is revealed, allow that to drive you to greater love to Jesus. If he reminds you of suffering you wanted to avoid, painful memories come up. Thank you, Jesus, that you've suffered for me. Help me know you're near. And go back to silence. Whatever comes, whatever is revealed, reasons you don't trust, reasons you don't love, give that back to Jesus in prayer. 
I know I'm worried about money and you should provide. Thank you that you provide. Help me. Whatever is revealed, take it back to him in prayer. You cannot know God truly apart from Christ, and you cannot know yourself truly apart from Christ. This way of praying becomes a conversation, just like you would have with someone else. I am so for intercessory prayer. I'm so for having a prayer list and asking our Father to provide us for things. If you spent, my concern for us as a church, if we spend 30 years asking God for stuff and never listening to God, I'm just concerned how much will we know God and how much will we actually love God. Every relationship requires participation. There has to be time where we slow down and allow God to speak to us. Most of us, here's how basic conversations go. If you're really bad at friendships, listen to me now. You ask somebody a question, and you listen to what they say. And if you, if you realize you haven't asked any questions, then you ask a question, and you listen to what they say. You don't, you don't listen to think of the one-up story or what you're going to say next, but out of genuine curiosity. This is how relationships work. I talk, and then you talk, and then I talk, and then you talk. Most of us have a bit of time for a good conversation this week. Most of us could find the time. If Brad Pitt called you and was like, hey, can we go to Quills? I just want to talk to you. You'd be like, you'd find the time, right? I'm guessing. I would find the time if Brad called me. I got questions about Ad Astra, if you guys have seen that. I got some questions. I got some questions. We would find time for that. So, could you find 10 minutes to talk with Jesus? When will you meet with Jesus this week? Maybe, what do you need to meet with Jesus this week? What do you need? What would you need to make that happen? If you're willing, set three appointments. Because here's a pro tip. If it's in your calendar, no one will disagree with you. Hey, can we do this? I've got an appointment. They're not going to say, well, who? And, and you can say, with the king of the universe, because I'm going to ask him to search me. Put it in your appointment, in your calendar, and there you go. Set an appointment with Jesus. Take 10, 15 minutes and say, search me. And I w- if you're willing to do that, the last step would be tell somebody what you heard. And listen, it probably won't be rational. When I, I, when I started doing this um, several years ago because I was kind of falling apart and a therapist told me to start doing this, and I started having these memories from when I was like 10 years old that I thought were totally ridiculous. And he was like, go tell somebody else. And... There was, something, there, there was something quite significant about my life that had, had, been remained, had remained unknown to me about why I am. The, not like I suppressed a memory like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that happened to me. It was more so I didn't realize how all of these things had shaped me and how the twisted version of myself was distorting all of my relationships with God and with other people. And so God showed something to me through a memory that I'd frankly forgotten. And then once I was able to share that, with a brother, with a sister, with people that I trust, it began to get some clarity. God was revealing himself and myself to me as I brought other people into that. So whatever comes to mind, it's okay if it's not rational. Uh, And if you're trying to have a mystery revealed to you, it probably won't make much sense to you at first. Again, because it's a mystery. If it wasn't a mystery, you would have it figured out. So it's okay if it's not rational. 
And it will probably feel strange if you've done this, if you've never done something like this. Listen to Jesus and then share what you've heard. God will search you to heal you. He will search you to reveal you. And he will search you to give you life. He will search you so you can know him and be satisfied. Why did I do that? Search me, O God, and know me. It's hard for me to trust you. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. I want to feel more alive. Lead me along the path of everlasting life. Dangerous prayers. But in Christ we know that these kinds of prayers will lead us to life. He doesn't reveal us to wound us. He reveals us to ourselves to heal us for the sake of knowing Christ. So we can enter into these kinds of painful processes in the unknown uh, by rooting ourselves in the love and provision of God in Christ. So we remember the night he was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread, and after giving thanks for it, he broke it and said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. After the meal, in the same way, he took a cup of wine, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. This is your relationship with God, sealed not with your wonderful prayer life, not through all of your self-awareness or whatever you bring this morning thinking you need to do to please God. Your relationship with God is sealed by the shed blood of Christ, which means we can pray dangerous things like search me, reveal me, um, with boldness and with confidence that we are safe even if what we find is unpleasant, even if what we find is hurtful or painful or disorienting. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. You can use whichever you'd like. And there'll be gluten-free elements to my left. And uh, there'll also be stations in the back. I'll pray for us. And then Christians, let's come remember our hope together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.